I'm Taylor, and welcome to Square Mile of Murder! Uh, before we begin, we have a quick update of sorts on the Stephen Lawrence case, uh, which we actually forgot to include in last week's episode. Uh, so William McPherson, who oversaw the public inquiry into the Met and their investigation into Stephen's death, uh, actually died a couple of weeks ago on Valentine's Day at the age of 94. Now, obviously, this isn't, like, a massive update specifically to the case or really the news any of us wanted to hear specifically, but uh, we did want to acknowledge Sir William's passing. The McPherson report found that British policing was institutionally racist and has been described as one of the most significant moments in UK criminal history. So thank you, Sir William McPherson, for your work. Um, you will be missed. Yeah, and 94, it's a hell of an age. Yeah, well, and like when we recorded that episode, he was still sort of like making public appearances and, and yeah. you know, doing stuff. So he's a he's an impressive was, guy. Yeah, Um, moving on. Our case this week is a listener suggestion from Rachel, who I have to apologize <laughs> to. Because when I answered the message on Instagram, so it's kind of a bit of a generic response because we don't know a lot of the people yeah. who message us, so it's it's kind of generic to start with. And I didn't realise that this is the Rachel I met at Taylor and the Gremlins' wedding. Yeah. So, <laughs> apologies, Rachel. As usual, I will reiterate, the only thing I really remember from that wedding was the food. Yes. Yeah. So, Rachel is um, is the Gremlins' oldest friend they met when they were like three years old or something so <laughs> hi uh haven't seen you in a while yeah but from the name i didn't realize i just totally didn't realize who it was so you know sorry so but um and, good yeah. good case suggestion and hey thank you for listening that's super cool and um yeah and this is actually a really cool one it's another older case uh which Everyone at this point knows that we love, and I think that whoever listens to this likes them. So, because you guys keep requesting them, which is really cool. Yeah, isn't it? Most of the requests we get are for like older cases. So, yeah, keep them coming. It's, I think they're really interesting. Yeah. Um, we love them. And this one is actually pretty interesting because it led to a change in the law in the UK. Uh, it deals with the issues of class, prejudice, and religion, uh, because. Why not just get into those two very <laughs> sticky topics? Yeah. Who doesn't love kicking those hornets' nests? I mean, why the F not? So uh, today we're covering the case of Constance Kent. And uh, we need to go back to the 1840s to get started. Uh, Constance Emily Kent was born on February 6th, 1844, in Sidmouth, Devon, in southwest England. Devon and neighboring Cornwall have for a long time been regarded as a very sort of upper middle class region. Um, property there is expensive, and the area has an aging population due to being a popular place for people to retire. It is a really nice area, though. It's expensive and full of rich retirees, especially Cornwall, more so than Devon. But they are really nice places to go. But 
pro tip. <laughs> if you want the Southern England coastal experience without the price tag, go to the Isle of Wight. Yeah. It's just as nice and a hell of a lot cheaper. Oh, there you go. You heard it here first. We are now travel agents. We'll take your bookings uh, for post-pandemic travel. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Um, Constance Kent was born into a wealthy family. She was the fifth of nine children, born to Samuel Saville Kent, who was a factory inspector for the home office. Um, he is uh, sometimes referred to as William Saville Kent. Uh, and his wife, Mary Ann Kent, uh, whom we cannot find a job for, so we assume that she was a housewife based on the time period. And all that. Yeah. Uh, Marianne was from a wealthy family herself. Her father was a coachmaker and an expert on the Portland vase, which is a Roman vase dating between 1 and 25 AD. And for everyone actually in the UK, that's vase. Well, I'm not from here. Yeah, just that translate. <laughs> I always find it funny that we say vase instead of vase. Because it's like base and case. Yeah, you don't say bars <laughs> or cars. Well, yeah, you do, but that means something, that's something else. else that yeah. Really posh. Cars. That's a that's car. Not... <laughs> yeah. Now it's an automobile. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but we originated the language, so you know, eh. it's up to us. Eh. I <laughs> I speak a different language. I speak American English. We've had this discussion before. We have. But you don't live in America anymore. But that doesn't mean it's not my native language. Yeah. Are but... you telling me to speak the language or get out of the country? What is this? Speak the language. No. Speak the language. I, 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 spell, I spell my colors with a U. Oh, we started adding U's into everything. And that's, that's what all What about S's and Z's? Uh... I kind of, I pick and choose which words get which, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> My computer and phone are set to UK spelling. That's as good as I'm oh. going to get. Fancy. To be fair, I don't know how to spell in either the United Kingdom or the United States, but. Yeah, me neither. So, so you know, it's all a crapshoot, really. The upshot of that is, it was a Roman vase. Uh, tragedy struck the family when Constance was just eight years old. After suffering from a long illness, her mother, Marianne, died in May 1852. Like most wealthy families, the Kent children were largely brought up and educated by a governess. Mary Drew Pratt had looked after the Kent children for many years and all through Marianne's illness. But Samuel quickly married Mary Drew <laughs> about a year after his first wife's death fueling local speculation that Samuel Kent was an adulterer and a philanderer. I don't know the difference, but he is described as both. Yeah. Maybe just, you know. So I think adulterer is if you're married, and I think philanderer is like a posh word for a man who just sleeps around, because we don't shame men for that, do we? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I can't say that I specifically know the difference. Maybe it's just like a on, on a Monday you're an adulterer, on a Wednesday you're a philanderer. Maybe you're in, well, adultery is mentioned in the Bible, so maybe that's if it's on a Sunday. Oh, or like one's one's a, a secular term and one's a religious term. Maybe. Someone yeah, please tell us. 
Yeah, if you know the difference, please tell us because we're too lazy to look it up ourselves. Yeah. And we both thought that they meant the same thing. Yeah. But yeah. So the adulterous philanderer <laughs> um, married the governess. And by 1860, the couple had three children. Now, as he had married his children's governess, Samuel Kent then had to employ a nurse <laughs> to take care of the younger children. Uh, and this was Elizabeth Goth. And at some point, the family relocated to the village of Road, uh, which is on the border of like Wiltshire and Somerset in southeast England. So that's kind of near like the South Wales border mm. area. Not as affluent as like Devon and Cornwall, but very nice area. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what we can find, the Kent family's lives were fairly normal in keeping with their social status for that time. And with the exception of Marianne's death and Samuel remarrying, nothing particularly eventful happened. That we've been able to find anyway. There's probably loads of local scandal because, you know, when a man marries his mistress, it creates a vacancy. (laughs) So, all was normal. Uh, He married the governess. They had a new... She's described as a nurse, but I think that's like the same. She did essentially the same role. Yeah. and all was well until the summer of 1860. So on the night of June 29th, 1860, Francis Saville Kent, the three-year-old son of Samuel and Mary Drew, disappeared from the family home Road Hill House. Uh, his disappearance was discovered at about 5 a.m. the next morning when the Kent children's nurse, Elizabeth Goff, woke up. When she got up, Elizabeth looked into the bedroom, which was shared by the Kent's uh, baby daughter, Eveline, and three-year-old Francis, and discovered that Francis was missing. But initially, uh, she wasn't too concerned that the child wasn't in his bed, because it wasn't unusual for his mother to come and collect the boy during the night and then take him back to bed with her. So Elizabeth thought sort of nothing more of it and went back to bed. When she got up again about an hour later, uh, she once again checked the children's bedroom, and upon seeing that Francis still wasn't in his bed, she knocked on the master bedroom door and asked Mary Drew if she should take the boy and get him ready for the day. Well, Mary Drew didn't know why Elizabeth was asking. As far as she was concerned, Francis was still in his bed in the other bedroom that he shared with his infant sister. So a frantic search of the Kent house ensued, and although there was no trace of the boy in the house, downstairs in the drawing room, now that's a posh extra living room or a parlour to the rest of us, yeah. uh, a window had been left open and Samuel Kent began to panic that his son had been kidnapped. So we should point out here that according to one of the contributors on Murderpedia, three-year-old Francis was the favourite of the 12 Kent children. Uh And this led to some resentment from the other children, especially his elder children from his first marriage and from Constance, who was now uh, now 16 uh, in particular. Okay. So Samuel Kent quickly dressed and uh, rushed to the police station in the neighboring town of Trowbridge, about four miles away. Uh, As the alarm was raised in road, villagers formed search parties and quickly began looking for the young boy. But by the time Samuel Kent returned from Trowbridge, the body of young Francis had been found by two of the village searchers in a disused outhouse 
on the Kent property. Francis was still wearing his nightshirt and had been wrapped in a blanket, and his throat had been deeply slashed, and he also had knife wounds to his chest and hands. An inquest quickly returned a verdict of murder by person or persons unknown. I would feel that that's pretty obvious for a three-year-old. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Like, why would you even need an inquen inquest, an inquest into that? Yeah, seems like a, a pretty standard conclusion to come to there. Yeah. Uh, local police quickly arrested the children's nurse Elizabeth, but there was no actual evidence against Elizabeth, other than she was a working-class woman and an upper-class child had been murdered. Yeah. Uh, the disused outhouse uh, in which Francis's body had been found, and in this case, an outhouse is an outside toilet, not like a little shed garage type of storage building, which is sometimes also called an outhouse nowadays. Uh, it's funny, because when I was reading the script, I was like, well, yeah, of course an outhouse is a toilet. <laughs> But I could see, I, I I have heard other, like, outbuildings referred to as. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, it's outbuildings. Yeah. I've heard them referred to as an outhouse a lot if they're, like, too small to be, like, a garage. Yeah, I could see that, like a shed kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I know people who had, they're, like, basically attached to a house, but they weren't a garage, so there was no, like, running water or electric or anything. So it was, like, a storage bit that was built onto the house. Uh -huh. So I've heard that called an outhouse. Yeah. No, in my world, an outhouse is a is a, a nice, small, wooden toilet with a, with a hole dug into the ground. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this, this outhouse had previously been the servant's outhouse. But that alone was not enough to, to charge Elizabeth with the boy's murder. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. This is this seems to literally be the thinking, oh, well, he was found in an old servant's toilet. There is a servant. It must be the servant. Right? And it's also like, it's not even the current servant's toilet. It's just like, at one point, a servant may yeah. have used it. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> and I, like, did, like, I tried to find so many sources because I was like, this cannot be the only logic. So unless something has massively been withheld, mm -hmm. which it wouldn't still be withheld 170 years later, I wouldn't have thought. No, probably not. That is the logic. I mean, one could argue that is not logic at all. Yeah. So, despite this, uh, Elizabeth was still held by police with no evidence, only some very clear ideas about class and character being indicative of innocence or guilt. So the local police didn't actually have any way of bringing the case to trial. So, on July 15th, less than three weeks after Francis's murder, the Metropolitan Police were called in to assist on the case. Uh, now, we've spoken a bit before about the Metropolitan Police, also known as the Met, uh, because they are a pretty common feature in a lot of major British crimes but we haven't really gone into like specifically who or what the Met is. So we talked about like the sort of institutionally racist nature of the Met in the Stephen Lawrence episode, but we haven't really talked about the history of, of the organization. So we will do that now. 
the Metropolitan Police is the police force responsible for policing the boroughs of London. Um, it's headquartered at New Scotland Yard in the city of Westminster, London, uh, which is also informally referred to as the Yard. Uh, the Met doesn't police the city of London, which is specifically the square mile city within Greater London, and it's the central business district of London. Um, so the city of London is policed by the much smaller uh, city of London police force. Yeah, London is a very weird makeup in that you've got the city of London and the city of Westminster. Yeah. And you've got Greater London. Yeah. But I do have an aside about the city. So the city of Square Mile, Mm -hmm. you know, very relevant to us. Yeah. So it is a square mile city. It's all like high rise. It's that central business district. Mm -hmm. On a weekend, it's absolutely dead. And it's so cool to walk around it because there's nobody. There's just nobody there. Even though London is like packed every weekend. Yeah. It's, It's so cool to just walk amongst all these like massive like super skyscrapers these really fancy expensive business buildings yeah um and it's just so cool because there's hardly anyone around i mean you get lost in there if you don't know where you're going because it's really it is a bit like a rabbit's warren in places but it's really cool yeah to be literally in central london and there be nobody around that's kind of like when i lived in the financial district in new york like pretty much there was nothing going on on the weekends. You could just wander around and like, you know, with the with the exception of some restaurants, like there was nothing happening. But there, there all these like massive, massive buildings everywhere. We really are a travel blog this week. Yeah, we are. <laughs> welcome, pod, welcome. Yes. What what does what does travel benefit most from? A non visual medium. <laughs> listen to us explain locations to you i think that would mean that could be like the new like asmr instead of listening to really random creepy noises you just listen to people describe locations okay i'll do it right now uh welcome ladies and gentlemen today we are sitting in my uh west end west ish end glasgow living room you're you're sitting in front of a bay window. There's sun coming in from your left hand side. Uh, there's a bunch of fake and slowly dying plants surrounding you. There's a very messy desk. And if you would like to hear the rest of this explanation, uh, just head on over to Patreon. Yeah. No, I don't have the patience for that. Uh, <laughs> anyway. So, uh, as well as policing the capital, the Met also has significant national responsibilities, such as uh, protecting the royal family, foreign embassies and dignitaries, and coordinating and leading counterterrorism initiatives and activities. The Met was formed 191 years ago, on September 29th, 1829. And as well as policing London, the Met may also be called into high-profile crimes elsewhere in England and Wales. Scotland obviously has its own completely separate law enforcement. Yeah. In high-profile investigations with very little progress or where local forces have made a mess of the investigation, 
the Met may be called in to take over, sometimes at the request of the victims and or their families, um, or it can be at the behest of the higher-ups in the local or regional police to sort of save face and avoid a PR nightmare, depending on how much of a mess the original investigation has become. Um, and even today, local forces do not take kindly to the Met being called in. Because it's basically a big flashing neon sign saying you're not doing your job right. Yeah. Um, in sort of more rural areas or areas with very sort of low serious crime rates, sometimes the Met are called in because local forces just aren't equipped or not experienced enough to deal with these very serious crimes. But either way, local forces don't tend to go out of their way to help the Met if they're called in. Uh, because remember... It is all about them and their feelings and not catching criminals or getting justice for the victims. Of course. Um, so that is our <laughs> very quick rundown of the Metropolitan Police. Uh, back in 1860, the local police were not happy about the Met being called in. You know, they believed they had solved the crime and they just couldn't prove it. Which I think means you haven't yeah, solved the crime. <laughs> but you've just picked a suspect and gone. Yeah, it was her. That's such a minor detail, really. Who 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 would even bother? Um so now if you kind of think about it here, at this time, we're still in the sort of very early days of what we would think of as modern policing. And at the time, the police were still very much married to the idea that class and character were indicative of guilt or innocence, disregarding any evidence or lack thereof pointing to the opposite. Um, and policing in Britain was born out of the upper class's desire to be, quote, protected from the lower classes, which is to say that they wanted police to enforce the divide between the upper and lower classes and ensure that the lower classes could not find their way into upper class spaces. And this meant that those in the upper classes got away with a lot uh, because uh, obviously people of money and means weren't thought of as being capable of committing crimes. And actually, um, a good example of that is the Oscar Slater case that we discussed in episode yeah. 40. Because, um, you know, he was a, a... He was a Jewish immigrant. He was a Jewish immigrant. He was sort of a, I wouldn't say like criminal underworld figure, but underworld figure. He's yeah, and it was kind of more... Was it more petty crime? I can't remember. It was like gambling. He was a gambler. Yeah. So, but like, so obviously he's a much better suspect than the person who probably actually committed the murder, which was like a doctor. Yeah. So that's a really good... If you want to... And we talk a little bit in that episode about all of the square mile murders and how like respectability and class divides really had a, a huge hand in, in how they all played out, so... That's a good one to listen yeah. to if you're interested in more about that. Uh, the upper classes had money and means, so, like I say, they didn't need to go and commit crimes like the lower classes do. But it's also very much a closed world in that the upper classes all tended to know each other, all vouch for each other. You know, I'm, I'm of good character, so I only associate with other people of good character. And this obviously, of course, leads to many problems with policing in the days before forensics and even, like, proper investigation. Mm-hmm. And because it's a closed world, it doesn't matter how much money you earn or how hard you work. If you can't break into this upper class society, you are still a commoner and working class. Yeah. 
Um, so, so it's around this time in the second half of the 19th century that police begin to develop these investigation techniques or investigative techniques that we now think of as basic policing. And the upper classes did not like that. So another thing that wasn't uh, particularly popular with the Victorian upper classes uh, is that because of these changes in policing, uh, there were now lower or working class people working in the police and working and working their way up to higher ranks. And now these lower class police members were beginning to tell the upper classes what they could and couldn't get away with. And, like, that's just not acceptable. Oh, no. Um, that would not do. It's just terrible. Uh, so when the Met was called in and the leading detective came from a working-class background, the Kents and their friends were not happy whatsoever. Detective Jonathan Witcher arrived in road to investigate Francis's murder on July 14th. He immediately requested a character reference for Elizabeth Goff, and he found that not only was there no evidence against her, that Elizabeth was also well-liked, kind, and respectable, um, and she was very good with the children. And so he released her, as he should have. He also discovered that there was a very high turnover of domestic staff at the Kent House, and he interviewed as many of them as possible, although he didn't learn why there was such a high turnover rate. Um, Jonathan learned from the former staff that Samuel Kent's children from his first marriage were not as highly favored as the three children from his second marriage, and that these older children were quite resentful, uh, and none more so than the 16-year-old Constance. Uh, Detective Witcher interviewed Constance and became increasingly suspicious of her as she was openly hateful of her stepmother and half-brother. But again, this, of course, is not enough for an arrest. However, in follow-up interviews with the domestic staff in the Kent house, uh, Witcher discovered that Constance's nightdress she had slept in on the night of her half-brother's murder had vanished. He learned that she had asked one of the maids where her nightdress was, and when the maid told her it was in the rest of the laundry, which was about to be sent to a local washerwoman in the days before a laundromat, uh, Constance told the maid to fetch her a glass of water, and when the maid was gone, she rifled through the laundry until she found the nightdress, and then hid it away somewhere. Suspicious. This is very, this is remind me of the um, Lizzie Borden dress that she burned in the stove a couple days after the the murderers. Yeah. Uh, when she was asked about the missing nightdress, Constance couldn't account for it, only offering up the explanation that it had been lost in the wash. As with all old and timey cases, it is hard to nail down the exact dates on which things happened, as there's so many differing versions, and official paperwork wasn't exactly a priority, <laughs> nor was really preserving things for future generations. I think that's in the same like one of the biggest problems is that like ultimately the records if if they were there to begin with they didn't survive uh so we're not sure exactly when but on either july 16th or july 20th 1860 
Constance Kent was arrested for the murder of her half-brother, Francis. But uh, a missing nightdress and a sort of open hatred for her now-deceased brother wasn't, like, a lot of evidence against Constance, although it is some evidence, but, like, probably not enough to build a case on. Um, and it was more evidence than there was against Elizabeth Goff. Well, there is actual evidence. Yes, so there, there is some evidence instead of none evidence. Yeah. Um, but the lack of evidence wasn't actually the main issue with the arre arrest of Constance Kent. Uh, the locals were shocked, horrified, uh, offended, and downright confused uh, as to why a sort of lowly working-class detective could have the absolute audacity to arrest a, quote, woman of breeding. Um, and obviously this <laughs> startled people into, into confronting the idea that they may no longer be above the law and that the class divisions that they had worked so hard to keep in place were becoming slightly less defined in terms of authority and law enforcement. And they didn't like that. So they... Not at all. Like, why would you really? So they set about doing their best to besmirch Witcher and exonerate Constance. Yeah, so although uh, the the local folk had been um, quite annoyed that a character reference, along with the lack of evidence, had been enough to uh, justify the release of Elizabeth Goff, uh, they decided it was enough to exonerate Constance um, and that the reference that she was from a good family and of a social station above the detective himself was entered in her defense when the case went before the magistrates on July 27th, 1860. Because that's all you need, really. Yeah. So, before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about Jonathan Witcher, since, you know, the local higher-ups in and around Road and Trowbridge had uh, such a problem with him. Jonathan, known to most as Jack, was born on October 1st, 1814 in Camberwell, South London. Jonathan's father worked as a gardener, and as a young adult, Jonathan worked as a labourer. But at the age of 33, he passed the tests required for entry into the Met, and in September 1837, he was assigned to the Holborn Police Station. Now, remember at this point, it's only eight years since the Met was actually formed, so it's very new. Yeah. Thing. Um, Jonathan Witcher married a woman named Elizabeth Harding, uh, although according to the uh, Wiltshire Open Parish clerks, there is no record of the marriage. Um, and Elizabeth gave birth to a son in 1838, whom they named Jonathan after his father, uh, but he did not survive childhood. Uh, Jonathan worked his way up from constable to detective, joining Scotland Yard's detective branch in 1842, and was considered a very successful officer until he was sent to road in 1860. So that's, that's 18 years as a detective. Yeah, that's a long time. 
That's a lot of experience and a lot of time to build that reputation. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So along with the local upper classes doing all they could to exonerate Constance Kent, the local magistrates and police force didn't take kindly to the Met being called in to solve the crime, and they did everything they could to humiliate Witcher. Uh, when the case went before the magistrates on July 27th, 1860, Witcher was laughed out of court by locals and the magistrates alike due to the lack of evidence and the sheer nerve of, uh, you know, a, a poor working class detective like Witcher accusing an upper class woman like Constance Kent uh, of something so audacious as murder. And uh, she was released on bail, and the case was abandoned soon after that. Uh, Witcher returned to London and retired soon after the um, after the court case. Well, what passed for a court <laughs> case back then? Uh, he retired on the grounds of ill health at the age of 46. Mm. Witcher always maintained his belief that Constance had murdered Francis, although he also thought that one of her siblings may have helped her. Upon his retirement, he is said to have claimed that the public would only know the truth once Constant Constance Kent confessed. Uh, we don't know much about his life after retiring from the force, only that he died in June 1881 at the age of 66. Uh, he did inspire a number of fictional detective characters, though, including Inspector Morse, uh, Child, Charles, Dickens, Charles Dickens' Inspector Bucket from the novel Bleak House, and Jack Frost, uh, most famous from the TV show A Touch of Frost. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Quite a list. I had no idea. I mean, obviously I've heard of Inspector Morse and A Touch of Frost because they were on, they were like the detective shows that were on like just before the watershed when I was a kid, so I saw the adverts for him, but I was never I never like stayed up to watch yeah. them. Um Bleak House I've heard of, I have no idea about I've it. I've heard Bleak House once upon a time. <laughs> it's very long. I'm just not I'm just not cultured enough to like Victorian literature. <laughs> I took a whole course on Dickens in in university, <laughs> which like I thought it would be really fun. And but actually it was just like, oh you need to read an eight hundred page book in a week. So you thought Dickens would be fun? Well, he's, he's quite irreverent in a lot of ways, his writing. But, like, mm. yeah, it was a, a very reading-heavy course. <laughs> so, the case does not end there. Following Constance's release, uh, Elizabeth Goth was once again the prime target for pretty much everyone in the area. She got so sick of the constant harassment that she moved to a neighbouring town and found work as a seamstress for a few weeks but she was still pursued and targeted. And in August 1860, so this is only a month after the trial, after Constance's trial, mm -hmm. she returned to her father's home in Islesworth. But in September 1860, a solicitor working for the Home Office proclaimed that Constance was innocent and that Elizabeth should be arrested. So she was. However, there was still no evidence that she did it, just that she was a working-class woman who worked for the Kents. So she was released after the other domestic staff and Samuel Kent's own mother testified in her defence. Nice. Elizabeth Goff returned to Isleworth and we don't know a lot about what happened to her after that. On the 1861 census, she was recorded as living in her father's home as a, quote, servant out of place. The case went cold 
And uh, because it had generated a lot of negative press, uh, the Kent family soon relocated to Wrexham in North Wales. By this point, the family were also quite unpopular locally as well, even with uh, other upper-class families. And uh, even the local children wanted nothing to do with the Kent children. When little Johnny doesn't want to play anymore. Kids don't care about adult gossip. Kids have their own gossip and bullying exactly. going on. Um, Constance was sent to a finishing school in France in early 1861, which was most likely an attempt to protect the rest of the family and the other children as much as possible from the scandal that would follow Constance wherever she went. When she returned to the UK two years later, in August 1863, she was sent to a religious institution in Brighton called the St. Mary's Home for Penitent Females, which has been described as being the type of place that unwed mothers and sex workers were sent to. So basically a Magdalene laundry. Yeah, those places existed until the 90s yeah. in Britain and Ireland. Uh, we're not exactly sure why Constance was sent to this house for penitent pen this house for penitent females. Uh, some sources describe the home as being a religious retreat, uh, as well as this home for unwed mothers, and that she was a paying customer rather than an unmarried woman or sex worker being subjected to the absolute horror of the Magdalene laundries. Um, but whatever reason there was for Constance taking up residence at St. Mary's Home for Penitent Females, it was during a confessional in April of 1864, eight months after she arrived, she finally revealed what happened the night her brother was murdered. Constance said that she waited until the whole family and the staff had gone to bed. She then went downstairs and opened the drawing room windows. Uh, she then took Francis from his bed, wrapped him in one of the blankets uh, that was there, and took him out to the disused outhouse. Earlier, she had stolen a razor from her father, and she slashed Francis's throat once they were in the outhouse. She had also hidden matches in the outhouse so that she had a source of light when she was committing the murder. Which shows pretty clear intent and planning. Like, she knew what she was doing, how she was going to do it, and she had everything planned yeah and also like uh it shows attempts at um casting suspicion off herself by like opening the windows and and everything as well yeah and using like stealing from her yeah. father to using his his razor yeah. to commit the exactly. crime it's like forensic countermeasures before such a thing existed yeah um so from what we can find, Constance did not explain why she murdered her brother, but it was widely accepted that it was out of jealousy and revenge because her father preferred the children from his second marriage uh, to Constance and her siblings from his first marriage. Uh, there have also been suggestions that Constance had at times suffered from mental health problems, but there isn't really anything to substantiate that, um, especially because the sort of lack of understanding about mental health at the time so that's even in well, our yes, times just lack of understanding in general um so that's a question mark so after confessing her crime to the reverend arthur wagner 
who was the director of uh, St. Mary's Home for Penitent Females. Just like, what a name. What a name. Yeah. Um, the clergyman accompanied Constance to the magistrate's office on Bow Street in London. At Bow Street, Constance confessed to Sir Thomas Henry, who was the chief magistrate. Uh, Francis's murder had generated quite a lot of press, uh, press coverage and captured the public's attention back in 1860. And now that Constance had confessed, proving that Jonathan Witcher had been right all along, the case was once again back in the public's consciousness. This is kind of like a, a practice run for Jack the Ripper. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, there were plenty of people who weren't convinced that Constance had actually murdered Francis. Rather, they believed that she had been forced or coerced into confessing by one of the men in her family. Uh, one theory was that her father had been having an affair with the children's nurse, uh, Elizabeth, and that he had murdered Francis in a rage after, quote, coitus interruptus. It sounds extreme, but it is possible. Now, this would fit an established pattern of behavior for Samuel Kent, because... As we know, he was known to be both a philanderer and an adulterer, and might as well throw a womanizer in there as well. Uh, and it seems as though it was a bit of an open secret that he uh, had been having an affair with Mary Drew while she was the governess, and he was still married to Mary Ann. Oh my god, there's so many Marys in that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> um, See, this is why they all have middle names, so that you know yeah, which really. one you're talking about. <laughs> I can tell him apart. Jeez. Uh, there had also been a lot of speculation before the murder that he was having an affair with Elizabeth. Now, the other theory was that if Constance wasn't protecting her father, she was protecting her brother, William Savile Kent. Jonathan Witcher had always believed that Constance hadn't acted alone, and he thought that it was her brother, William, who was the accomplice. Uh, some agreed with Witcher, and others believed that William was the sole culprit and Constance had nothing to do with the murder. Uh, the two siblings were very close. William was only a year younger than Constance, and their bond was strengthened over their resentment towards their father, because nothing brings people together like hatred. I mean, it is a very strong bonding agent. It is. It's um, it's like super glue. Yes. Yeah, so so their their bond is strengthened over their resentment towards their father, Mary Drew, and their new family, their new siblings. Uh, William went on to become a highly regarded marine biologist and author, and no charges were ever brought about in relation to his half-brother's murder. Uh, what was different this time around was that now Constance was doing her all to emphasize that she bore no hatred or resentment or jealousy towards Francis and her stepmother. Whereas following the murder, uh, when Elizabeth had been arrested, you know, made no attempt to hide the fact that she hated and resented her father's new family. In April 1865, almost five years after the murder, in a year after the confession, uh, Constance finally went to court at Salisbury Assizes. We're back, baby. As I yeah. I thought you'd have more to say. I've missed it. We should we should 
We should have it more often. I forget when it first came up. Uh, it, was... it was Mary Bell, which was quite an oh, earlier yeah. episode. Uh, yeah. So sizes were uh, like a type of court. I think it's is it a high court. It's like a traveling court or something. Yeah. Right? So it was like a high yeah. court. Well, like not every town had a high court or had a need for one. So their sizes tra- and the staff kind of traveled around towns and then all the cases would be held in quick succession at the assizes and then they'd travel to another town. Yeah, we think, and it's and it's got a cool name. Yeah, and Taylor S-sizes. really likes assizes. I do. I love it. So, at the assizes, Constance pled guilty to murder, and she was sentenced to death by hanging. But she was reprieved by Queen Victoria herself, and the yeah. sentence was commuted to life in prison. She's quite, you know, she's quite a generous queen, Queen Victoria. I mean, I- she commuted. The sentence of one of the people who tried to kill her. Yeah, like, I mean, also, you know, she just had time for a lot. I mean, I guess she was obviously a very long reigning queen, mm. but like, she got a lot done. She just, you know, she's commuting people here, getting nearly assassinated there, setting up like undercover plots over here expanding the entire British Empire, marrying off all of her 8,000 grandchildren to various European Cousins. countries. Like, you know, she's a busy lady. Yep. Ignoring a famine in Ireland. It's fine. We just have to balance it. <laughs> yeah. She wasn't perfect. No, she was not because perfect. the British monarchy will never be perfect. No. Um, Just look at Charles. I mean, what? Say what now? Nothing. (laughs) I said nothing. In the end, Constance only served 20 years, which is quite a come down from death by hanging. I think she got off lightly. A little bit. Which meant that when she was released in 1886, she was still only 41. Wow. Uh, She changed her name to Ruth Emily Kay. And migrated to Tasmania, where her brother William was already living and he was working as a government advisor on fisheries. Constance eventually moved to the mainland in Australia and trained as a nurse in Melbourne. Um, So Constance moved around southern Australia working in various nursing jobs until she retired in 1932 at the age of 88. Uh, She died on April 10th. 1944 at the age of 100 in a private hospital in Strathfield which is a suburb of Sydney but that's not the end of the story now uh, you might remember at the beginning of this episode we said that this case led to a change in British law which is like true but it's not quite true it's not exactly a law per se but it has to do with the privilege privileges allowed to members of the church yeah it's it's kind of in respect to a law that is very very much bent to yeah. whoever's will also like we should say for anyone who's not familiar that in general uh british law isn't so much an easily discernible written down thing it's a bunch of um like precedents set by various cases over 
hundreds of and thousands of years. Yeah, we are like one of only two countries in the world that doesn't have a written constitution of all our laws. Uh, the other yeah. being Saudi Arabia. But yeah, so it's quite hard to decipher British law sometimes. Yeah. So it's it, it's more like British legal precedent. Yeah. Along with all the speculation uh, to do with Constance's confession, there were also questions uh, that were asked at the time about the role of Reverend Arthur Wagner. So when she confessed, Constance told Reverend Wagner that she wanted to give herself up to justice, and he helped her to do that. Um, however, when he was questioned by magistrates, he claimed that he could not give any more information because the confession had been received under the seal of sacramental confession. So, the seal of the confessional, which is the official term for the seal of the sacramental confession, is a principle within Western Christianity which protects the words spoken during confession. Um, so, in basic terms... It means that if you make a confession to a clergyman, no matter what sort of denomination, in Western Christianity, some say this includes Catholicism, some don't. Some say it's only Protestant denominations. I'm not arguing either way because I don't know. <laughs> um, what it means is if you make a confession to clergymen, they are duty-bound duty not to reveal what you have confessed, and therefore cannot testify in court about the nature of the confession. So in court, the Rev, Arthur Wagner, was duty-bound not to reveal what Constance had confessed to him. Uh, so the public saw this as wrong, and there was what's been described as a considerable expression of public indignation <laughs> that his position as a clergyman gave him the right to withhold evidence. Because if it was anyone else, you'd be... Um, probably you could probably be done for perverting the contempt. course of justice yeah contempt withholding contempt information um yeah in interfering with an investigation yeah. maybe so the case was discussed in parliament along with other cases in which the seal of confession had prevented clergymen from testifying and in the late 19th century it was proclaimed that doctrines seal of the confession and priest penitent privilege do not apply in english law so this means that in england and wales privilege communication exists only between the accused and their legal representation now this isn't really enforced and the church is still kind of left to regulate itself um Although it doesn't seem to be as much of a problem as it once was uh, now because less people confess their crimes to their, you know, priest, vicar, reverend, minister, church, wizard, minister, sky pilot, druid, like any of these various, um, you know, uh, alien lord zabu or whatever the sky fairies uh scientology one is um l ron hubbard's ghost uh, <laughs> um however the official guidelines for the professional conduct of the clergy which were updated in 2003 
these guidelines still contain the canon from 1604, which states that there can be no disclosure of what is confessed to a priest, even after the death of the penitent. Uh, the canons even go so far as to say that even if the confession or the behavior of the person confessing threatens their health or well-being or that of others, the clergyman must still protect the confession. So basically, the Church of England is still saying that even though it's no longer legal, clergymen must, or clergy women, as we do now have, must, clergy still, folk. Yeah, must still protect the confession above all else, even above other people's lives. Yeah, it's not great. There is a bit of a footnote to this, though. Clergymen are duty-bound to protect the identity of whoever is giving the confession, but where children are concerned, they are also duty-bound to disclose information relating to children at risk. But preserving the confession always comes first. So if the only way to protect an at-risk child means revealing the identity of their abuser, you know, if it's like abuse in within the home, if it's like a parent or caregiver, mm -hmm. um, they can sit back and do absolutely nothing to ensure that the identity of the confession, the person who made the confession is protected. Cool. Yeah. And, um, yeah, if we're wrong, Please, please send us sources to prove it because that is all that we can find is that it me the confession comes before all else. Yeah. Which, like, I'm sure that there are some clergy members who do not follow that to the letter of the, you know, tradition or whatever and yeah. put um, safety of of others first. But I'm also sure that there are those who do. So yeah, and, and uh, as are most, you know, uh, regulations followed in various ways. Yeah, um, and that is the case of Constance Kent and the case of fratricide, which kind of didn't really change English law all that much. Yep. <laughs> Thoughts, uh, comments, queries, anger. I mean, it sucks a lot. I I think it's interesting, but like, so I want to know why all of a sudden she just decided. Well, I'm I'm a going to confess, and b not only am I going to confess, I'm going to ask the reverend who I'm confessing to, who has to keep my secret, to bring me to the cops. Yeah, that's interesting. That's weird. Like, I don't know why she would do that after four years. Like, she's gotten away with it, so... What, what I wonder about is if that's not what she confessed, if she did confess to having accomplices, mm -hmm. knowing that he could not reveal that. Maybe. And it's kind of like, well, I'll go and confess because because her brother at that point was becoming quite well he's obviously a younger so he was 20 but he was at university and he became a marine biologist yeah. and went on to do really well so i wonder if there was something in that that like was kind of like protecting right, him you need to go and confess to make sure because there was a lot of chattering about her brother and his role yeah. in all of this so i do wonder if sort of it was kind of like well 
you go and do this. And she's like, right, I confess, you know, confess to the Rev and then that makes it right with God. And mm-hmm. then go and confess that A version. Part of the, the truth. Place. Yeah. 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 I can see that. Um or it could just be that, you know, it was kind of like a just drove her mad kind of thing and she had to confess for her own sanity. Maybe she was just so sick of the uh St. Mary's home for penitent lady people that you know, she's like, I I'd rather be in prison, guys. Yeah. Or maybe she did do it. Maybe it was just her and being in that kind of environment led her she, to confess. She saw the light. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll never know. Stranger things have happened. Yes, absolutely. Now, I think it's an interesting case. I think it's, um, like, obviously very indicative of the time period and very similar to some of the other cases that we've covered from this time and even a little bit later where like someone's social standing, someone's occupation, someone's background really does have a massive, massive impact on what they can get away with or what they're accused of as well. And I find it really interesting just because you'd say I'm from uh, a very working class background and sort of seeing the difference now. So this is, Hundred hundred sixty years later. Yeah. Seeing in a way nothing has changed. Yeah. And like the legal it's... system, yes, has developed and moved on. And now it's okay, if you're rich, you automatically get preferential treatment because you can afford better legal representation. Yeah. You know, people get sent you know, poor people are put in prison all the time because they can't pay fines. But yeah, so let's say things have moved, like things have moved on, but nothing's changed. Yeah, there is still massive disparity in, and we talked about this in the episode on Shannon Matthews, Mm -hmm. the way her family were treated when she went missing, quote unquote missing, compared to how Madeline McCann's family were treated when she disappeared, because they were sort of middle class, you know both doctors whereas Shannon's family were from a council estate and then obviously when that turned out to be what it was we won't spoil it for you go back and uh, listen to that episode but when that all came crashing down it was like well we're justified in everything we said about them being you know you know wasters from a council estate because look at what the truth was yeah and it was like a way of retrospectively justifying it yeah oh for sure so, on that note, I think it's it's time to end. Um, uh, yeah, so let us know what you think about the episode, about um, sort of anything we've discussed today. Uh, and you can talk to us on social media, particularly Instagram. Um, we're there. Check us out. We- Do it for the gram. <laughs> Or something like that. <laughs> um, we would super duper love it if uh, wherever you are listening to us right now, 
you would be so kind as to give us a rating and a review because it really helps us reach more people and um, it's super easy for you to do. And hey, while you're there, you could also subscribe to us uh, or like favorite us or whatever so that you are always notified when we release new episodes. Um, or if your your current listening platform of choice does not allow ratings or reviews because some of them don't, um, you could go like us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page uh, and leave a review there because that is also a thing that exists, Facebook page reviews. So um, if you're so inclined, we would really appreciate that as well. If you would like to go one step further and support us with actual cash, we would love you so much. We do know this is a very strange time to ask people for money because yeah. the world is fucked. But anyway, uh, you can sign up as a patron. Go yes. to patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder. And for as little as £1 or $1 a month, you can sign up. You get regular episodes a day early. £2 and up, you get one bonus episode a month and some really cool merch. Yes. Which, uh, yay, we our, get to our do our new monthly ramble. Yes. If you like it when we go off script, you will love that because <laughs> yeah. there is no script. Yeah. Um, Five pounds and up, you get two bonus episodes. Ten pound and up, you get three bonus yes. episodes every month. As well as regular episodes a day early, you get a lifetime um, discount on merch. Yep. Which is available for anyone to buy. The merch we send out to patrons in your second it's month different. is stuff you can't buy anywhere. Um, so that's completely separate. But we do have a merch shop, which we will leave a link in the episode description. And... Because this month, Taylor's going to be 30 years old. Yay! Uh, for the whole month, we are offering you 30% off all Square Mile merch. Yes. That is my my birthday gift to you. Uh, use the code OMG30 at the checkout for 30% off all merch. Uh, in honour of Taylor's birthday. Yes, you're welcome, everyone. I'm old, so you get a discount. <laughs> I'm always going to be the youngest one. Oh, God. <laughs> um, you can also uh, keep up to date with all the latest news and goings-on uh, by signing up to our monthly newsletter, yes. which actually goes out at the end of this week. Mm -hmm. There is a link in the show notes, so sign up for that. We have like a privacy policy on the website as well. Uh, so you can check that out if you want. And it's all done through MailChimp, who have their own GDPR policy. Yeah. You know, lots of little disclaimers there, but yeah. Yeah, like we should say, we are not in the business of selling your personal information. Like, we just want to find different ways to, to talk to you guys. So, like, we that's also what we're don't really in. know how to sell people's personal information. No, I data. have no clue how to do that. <laughs> so, it's not going to happen. We're too lazy. Don't worry about yeah. it, please. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah, sign up and keep keep up to date with us. And I yeah. say, go and buy merch in honor of Taylor's birthday. Uh, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We will be back next week with yep. a brand new episode. Yep. Thank you so much, and we'll see. We will see you then. Bye. Bye.